504 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, a man flicked a match on a proverbial powder keg, and that explosion ended up setting the Western world and beyond aflame in a holy fire. And he did so in a most unexpected way, by nailing a sheet of paper on a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, this man had not set out to overturn an empire and could have had no idea the gigantic impact that those few taps on a nail would ultimately have. But with the hindsight of history, we know that this man was indeed at that time a chosen instrument in the hand of a wise and sovereign God. A sovereign God who had had enough of the glorious gospel of his son, the glorious good news of free grace through faith being perverted and obscured and blasphemed and leveraged, not to bring men to salvation and spiritual consolation, but was being used to maintain corrupt political power and for dishonest financial gain. This man, of course, was named Martin Luther. He was a monk. And what was written on his paper was something known as the 95 Theses. These were 95 theological issues that he had with the Roman church of whom he was a part of. There was no other option at that time. Catholic means universal. It was the church, not counting the schism with the East. Luther had been observing many ways that the church had gotten out of step with the teachings of Scripture. And at the center of his complaint concerned his issue with the practice of selling indulgences. See, the church at that time taught that even though Christ died for our sins, we still have to pay off some of the punishment for our own sins. And so after we die, we would go to a place called purgatory, where we would purge the rest of our sins. But there was a way out of purgatory. See, indulgences were essentially, according to the church, a get-out-of-purgatory-free card for yourself, a document given on behalf of the Pope that absolved you of your remaining sin, provided that you ponied up the right amount of money. Now, interestingly, at the time, the church happened to be renovating St. Peter's Basilica, and they needed to fund it. Well, what better way to do so than to tell the peasants who, by the way, did not have access to the scriptures for themselves, that they simply need to hand over their paycheck. And forgiveness was theirs. And there was one guy in particular, a friar named Johannes Tetzel, who traveled to Germany, where Luther was, on behalf of the Pope. And he would go after the poor peasants and tell them that they could even save their family members now, that they would just by an indulgence. Indeed, he had a little jingle. It went, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And this was the straw that broke Luther's back, as it were, and pushed him over the edge. And here's why. Luther was uniquely poised to play this role because he knew from personal experience the unbearable burden of the false gospel of self-righteousness of the false gospel of Christ plus anything. He knew that if he had to play any role in his salvation, he was utterly lost. 
Because God is perfectly holy and perfectly just, and we are not. There is no amount of confession or indulgences or penances that anyone could ever perform to stand righteous on the day of judgment before God. And Luther himself, who had been neurotic about his own personal sin, he used to spend literally hours in the confessional trying to rack his brain for every possible sin that he had committed because he believed if he didn't confess perfectly, he would not be forgiven perfectly. And of course, he couldn't profess, uh, confess perfectly, which kept Luther in a constant state of despair. He lived in a maze of despair, thinking behind every corner, judgment awaited him if he did not perfectly confess. That is, until in the grace and providence of God, his eyes fell upon one particular verse. And this verse was the key that opened the door for him out of the suffocating cell of works righteousness into the wide open sun-soaked plains of the gospel of free grace. And the verse was Romans 1.17, which says this, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And God, through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, allowed him to truly see this for the first time, that God's righteousness, the righteousness of God himself, is imputed to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And after he saw that by grace, everything changed. Because only the true gospel is the power unto true salvation, which he finally experienced. And reflecting on this moment of illumination, this moment of, of gospel clarity, Luther wrote this. He said, I felt at that moment that I had been born anew and that the gates of heaven now had been opened to me. The whole of scripture gained a new meaning. And from that point on, the phrase the justice of God no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of his great love. And with that, the Protestant Reformation, of which we are the grateful inheritors, was birthed. And we thank God for this glorious recovery of the true gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in the providence of of God, the continuing providence of God, we happen to find ourselves week 23 of our study of Philippians on the great theme of the Reformation. I'm not smart enough to align that. That's just where we are in our text. Namely, that righteousness comes not through works. Righteousness is ours through faith alone. So if you would open your scriptures in Philippians 3... We will be in verses 1 through 9. We'll, we'll probably be here for the next two weeks or so. So far in our study, one of the main themes for Paul has been joy amidst hardship and an appeal for, for humble unity within the church together. But in this text today, 
he zeroes in on a threat that caused all of his apostolic alarms to go off. Because what he addresses today was not simply a threat to the relational unity within the church, but it was a threat to the Philippians' understanding of the gospel itself. Not unlike what Luther faced in a sense. And so today we must admit we find the Apostle Paul in something of rare form, as it were. Because I react differently to my three-year-old based on whether she's about to step into a puddle or step off a cliff. The first reaction is gentle correction. The second is an urgent and perhaps jarring yell. If she steps in a puddle, no big deal. Wet socks on the drive home. If she steps off the cliff, that's a matter of life and death. And so the reaction corresponds to the threat. And so it is today with Paul. He sees a potential cliff on the Philippian horizon and responds fittingly to it. So what's, what's going on here? What was posing such a destructive threat to the Philippians? Well, it was a group of people that Paul in Galatians calls the Judaizers, who he has to deal with multiple times in multiple epistles. The, the, the Judaizing threat. See, While many of the Jews, and especially the Jewish authorities, flatly rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah, they had him crucified, um, the Judaizers were Jews who embraced Jesus as Messiah, and they agreed that Gentiles could indeed get in on that, could be converted, but they taught that in order for a Gentile to be truly converted, to be truly saved, They must still adhere to the Mosaic law found in the Torah, including circumcision, which was, of course, the sign of the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. It was a big deal. So essentially they believed that that salvation still was, was ultimately achieved by a combination of God's grace in Christ and continued adherence to the law. They believed in Christianity in a sense, but in a Christianity that was still undergirded by ardent adherence to the ceremonial law that Christ fulfilled. Got it? That was their form of Christianity, which is not Christianity at all. The most destructive lies have a gloss of truth over them. Because though we still do hold to the moral law in the Torah as Christians, for it is an expression of God's holy character, his immutable character, something the law itself revealed to Israel is that they couldn't keep the law perfectly. That's why they needed to keep making sacrifices over and over again. And that's why when Jesus Christ declared, it is finished on the cross, it was such a earth-shattering moment because it meant that finally the law had been fulfilled and a final atonement had been made for the covenant people of God. It is finished. As Romans 8, 3 through 4 says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And then catch this. 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be filled in us, might be fulfilled in us. Or Galatians 2, 16, three times in one verse, Paul makes this point. He says, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. And then he reiterates it again, because by works of the law, no one can be justified. But the Judaizers didn't buy it. They said, no, you do still need to adhere to the ceremonial law, you Gentiles. It's not actually finished for you yet. It was the false gospel of Christ Plus, so, so this is what Paul is dealing with. And it appears that this actually wasn't the first time that this Judaizing wolf had come near to the Philippian sled. That's why, if you look at verse 1, after calling them to rejoice in the Lord, which is the theme of Philippians, just rejoice, he says this. To write the same things to you, it's no trouble to me and it's safe for you. That's most likely referring to what he's about to say. He's essentially saying, now I've said this before, but I don't mind saying it again. It's not a problem, and you need to hear it again. This is safe for you to hear. As I once heard George Grant say, battles don't stay won. Just because you've stood firm once doesn't mean you won't need to fight the same battle again. You will, because the enemy strikes in waves, and the sin that you slayed on Monday will probably rise again on Tuesday, and the same heresy the church condemned once will creep in over and over again. And so it's from here that Paul, rejoicing Paul, loving Paul, pastoral Paul, pulls out some heavy verbal artillery. First, he says, Look out. So he wants their attention. He says, look at me, Philippians. Look out. And then, under the inspiration of God, and this, that's important here, he launches into some language that was highly and purposefully jarring and attention-grabbing. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who, who mutilate the flesh. Now, even in English, we can tell that this is a forceful statement, but it's even more so in the Greek because each word starts with a, a hard K sound. It's very abrasive. He says, look out for the, the kainos, the, the kakaos, and the katatamen. It's jarring, and it's biting, in a sense. The, these are arrows shot with piercing precision at the anti-gospel that he's looking at. It was meant to scandalize those who diminished the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ by elevating the law that Christ had fulfilled and that crushes people. And so each one of those arrows had a specific target. He calls them dogs, First, because why do you keep the law? So that you can be clean. What's more filthy than a dog in that day? 
who eats filth. That would have been a very offensive thing to say in a Jewish culture. They're, they're dogs. They are the height of uncleanliness if they think that they can be clean by their works. He calls them evildoers to make the point that those who think salvation is found in Christ plus hyper-law-keeping, super-holiness, if you think that's true, you are the chief of evildoers. He calls them mutilators of the flesh to say scandalizingly that those who now place their faith in Christ plus circumcision are simply just mutilating themselves now. Now, this certainly would have gotten Paul scolded by the PC police in our time. And I'm sure there would have been calls for him to be canceled by many, both in the culture and inside the church, had he tweeted this out. But this isn't Paul being cavalier or cruel. This is a faithful shepherd calling out a wolf when he sees it. The Philippian flock was in danger of coming under the Judaizing spell of a false gospel. And so he addresses it head on with colorful, memorable language. The Apostle Paul wasn't a coward who avoided the issue or who spoke so overly vague and so overly ambiguous that you didn't even know what he was talking about so nobody gets offended. Paul was courageous. Paul was convictional. And Paul spoke with absolute clarity in broad daylight. Paul didn't fear being canceled because Paul didn't fear man. And this was a self-conscious decision he made. He said it to the Galatians in chapter 1. After there, he said some very strong things about people being anathema if they preach a false gospel. He knows that's a heavy thing to say. And then he says, I've already made myself uncancelable. He wrote, Am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I still trying to please man? Well, if I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And we can learn from the Apostle Paul here because one of the great needs of our time is Christians that have the courage to stand for obvious truth and to stand with unwavering conviction for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even if it puts us at odds with Babylonian sensitivities. And especially when cultural winds seep into the church and threaten to undermine the gospel. Now, in our day, the threat to the gospel is not circumcision. But threats have come in to the church through the Trojan horses of intersectionality and critical theory, worldviews that categorize people and their original sin based on ethnicity or sex or any other category. That is a false gospel that not only redefines sin, but then redefines what atonement for that sin is outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, the world can play this game all they want, but the church rejects this as Christless, hopeless, false gospel. And there's nothing new under the sun, friends. The Apostle Paul spoke directly to this issue in Galatians 3, 27 through 28. Speaking of wanting to to categorize people and then figure out how the gospel applies to them, he says, for as many as you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. And here there is neither Jew 
nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Wildly scandalous to write in the first century. The gospel says that we all descended from one man and we are all equally condemned in Adam and we are all saved into one new humanity through Jesus Christ. And when we do sin against each other in the church, which we will, we go to each other directly and we ask for forgiveness and we give each other forgiveness for the actual sins that we've actually committed. And we celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes us ministers of reconciliation with each other. Again, each age is going to have its own threat. This is one of the threats to our time. For Luther, it was indulgences. For Paul, it was the Judaizers. We must have the courage to combat it out of love and loyalty to Christ. But then... Paul goes on further to build his argument by redefining what circumcision is, in effect. Again, continuing to scandalize. He shows that it was a temporary sign that was given with a shelf life, that it pointed to a greater reality, which then he spells out here in verse 3, if you are continuing along. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He is saying, in effect, true circumcision is not about body transformation. True circumcision was pointing to heart transformation, that the Spirit of God would apply to a man or a woman to open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus Christ. That was the point of circumcision, to look ahead to heart circumcision. This is the true and the saving circumcision, as Romans 2.29 says. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And then Paul goes on to set his resume against these Judaizers to show that he thoroughly understands where where they're coming from. It's not like he doesn't comprehend what their argument is. Indeed, he says, if you want to play the Judaizing game, I beat all of them, more righteous than all of them. And again, Paul's in rare form. Look at verse 4. We'll read through the end of 9. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, Another time, I think it's 2 Corinthians 10 or 11, um, where he's given his resume in another place. He hates doing it, and he says, I'm speaking like a madman, and you drove me to it. I don't want to bring out my resume, but I will if I have to. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks that they do. I have more. Verse 5 I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. Wow. But whatever gain I had, 
I now count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as not just not true anymore, but loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish. That's another not, let's just say colorful word in the original. In order that I may gain Christ. In order that I may be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, this is not Paul bragging. This is, a Paul who, uh, this is Paul who, who loves dearly this church. And this is a man who had had a life-transforming experience with the living Christ. One that initially blinded him physically, but opened his eyes spiritually to see the glory of Jesus Christ and to see himself and to see the law all in the bright light of the resurrection. To see that all of his impeccable law-keeping could never save him. Because the law cannot save. Indeed, it had been spiritual pride for him. Rather, the law in its impossible weight was preparing Israel to long for their Messiah. The one whom all the law and all the prophets were pointing to. Jesus Christ the one who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus Christ, the one who came to take all of the punishments our law-breaking requires and to propitiate all of them. And Jesus Christ, the one who unites us to his very person so that all of his righteousness is credited to us imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is yours. Even so, as all of our sins were imputed to him on the cross. As the great gospel beacon of 2 Corinthians 5, 21 proclaims, For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God himself. Now next week, we'll spend some more time in the specific of these verses. But for today, I want to simply close by speaking the glorious and liberating gospel from our passage plainly. Pilgrim Hill, your righteousness is bound up in Christ alone. And it's yours through faith alone. As I once heard a pastor say, if the gospel sounds too good to be true, it means you're starting to finally understand it. No works of the law can save you. On the final day, when the judge of all is judging all, we won't bring out our resume. We will say, I'm with Jesus Christ. That's it. And that's the gospel. If you believe that God's affections for you wax or wane, depending on the day of the week, 
This means you don't fully believe the true gospel. That you think your righteousness and your salvation is based on Christ plus something. But that is a false gospel. We must never come before God clinging to Christ with one hand, but still holding on to a little bit of our efforts with the other. Jesus Christ must be embraced with both hands. Our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. And if you cling to even one line of your own resume, you have not embraced Jesus Christ. Yes, we speak much of obedience and much of faithfulness at Pilgrim Hill, but that's always on the other side of the cross. It's works we do from our union with Christ, not to get united with Christ. It's good works that God prepared that come from a new identity, not to be given an identity. That makes sense. It must be settled when it comes to our justification, our confidence that we are firmly and finally citizens in the kingdom, in the covenant, is through Christ. We simply say, I am here totally and completely because of the grace towards me, a sinner, in Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. And in the providence of God, the fathers of the Reformation fought to recover this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with incredible courage and often at great personal sacrifice. And we are not just the happy inheritors, but we are now the torch bearers, the ones who, under God, have been tasked with keeping the flame burning for our children and for our grandchildren. And so may it be. And all God's people said, and amen. Let us pray. Well, Father in heaven, we come to you in light of this, both incredibly humbled as we think of the unbelievable thing that Christ had to do to save us. He had to go to the cross because things were that bad. And Father, we also come to you unbelievably liberated. Hearing the words of our Christ, echoing from 2,000 years ago, that it is finished. The law is fulfilled. And so, Father, I pray for any at Pilgrim Hill who, who believe this, but perhaps not really. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would push the gospel into the corners of our being. That we would spend a lot of time making much of Christ. And zero time trying to make much of ourselves, just being faithful in light of what Christ has done. And we know this is a miracle that you not only perform once at our regeneration, but that you continue to perform as you draw us into deeper levels of faith. So help us, Lord. Mature us. And in our maturity, may we even get more simple when it comes to the gospel. Nothing in our hands we bring, only to the cross we cling, of course. In Christ's name we pray.